you'll find your way to Acts chapter 14. We're going to be looking at the rest of Acts 14 this morning, picking up where we left off last week and going all the way through uh, chapter 15, verse 6. I just want to talk with you guys this morning for the moments that we have to study the Word of God together as a church family. I would like to talk with you about the importance of the local church from this passage of Scripture. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. God, we have prayed this many times over the years. We are thankful for your goodness and your kindness to us that in creation you set an ordinance in place that shows your goodness and shows our need for you and shows your wisdom that you have given us a day of rest. Rest from our labor but then also finding rest in you and your word with your people. And Father, it also points to a great salvific rest that one can find rest from their sin in Christ as he simply offers, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And then Father, it also points to this rest that all of us as your children long for when we cross the finish line and when we are with you in heaven, when you consummate your kingdom even, when there'll be no more pain, <clears throat> there'll be no more death, there'll be no more sickness, hardship, adversity, no more persecution, no more sin. God, this day, as you sanctified it and set it apart and then put it in your law for us to keep is for our good. And we just say thank you for that. Thank you for knowing what we need before we even understood that we needed it. So with all that being said, God, we now ask for your blessing upon our time as we turn our attention to the word and as we study. Uh, Father God, we humbly ask that your spirit attends our hearts that, Father, you open us, open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds to receive your word, to see the truth of your word, to see our need for the application of your word. We pray for your spirit's help in applying our word in your word, <laughs> applying your word as well. Lord, God, everything about us just screams out our utter dependence upon you. And so we're thankful for that. So we love you. We praise you. We thank you for this passage of scripture and you inspiring uh, Luke to write this for us. We're very humbled by that and very grateful. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've talked about this multiple times, but as we've looked at the book of Acts, one of the things that we've definitely seen week in, week out, Chapter after chapter, section after section, verse after verse is the fact that the gospel has advanced through much adversity and through much hardship. 
We've seen that there's been varying degrees of adversities and tests and trials. And we've also seen that there are uh, varying ways in which those trials have come. This morning, when we come to our text, we're really going to come to a passage of scripture that I would say is probably one of the most crucial moments in the life of the book of Acts, in the life of this first century believers that we've faced so far. So many different trials, so many different adversities, so many different hardships, but this one's different. I mean, truthfully, with the exception of Acts chapter 6 and the, the need to appoint some deacons and back up one chapter to Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, if you think about it with me, and I may be overlooking one, so if I am, please forgive me. But with the exception of Acts 5 and Acts 6, those two accounts that I shared with you, most of the adversity and most of the trials and most of the suffering and most of the things that the first century believers went through, most of those things came from without the church, from the outside. In other words, it was persecution from the outside or some kind of struggle from the outside, unbelievers or the community or whatever's going on. It wasn't from within the church, but when we come to... Acts 15 and the need for a Jerusalem council, one of the things that we discover is this really is one of the few exceptions so far where the adversity, the trial, the test comes from within. And it's nothing to overlook because really at the heart of the matter was the changing of the content of the gospel. And ultimately what's resting in the balance is the question, how is a person saved? Is a person saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone? Or do we have to add some kind of a human work to that in order to be saved? It's funny how times change and people change and cultures change and kingdoms come and kingdoms go, but that one question never goes away. People are always trying to add things to the gospel. Here we are, 21 centuries later, and we can look back and see that over and over and over again. But let's not miss out the fact that miss out on the fact that these first century believers, this was a new thing for them. They had never crossed this bridge before, so to speak. They had never gone this way before. This was something that they would need wisdom from God on. This is something that they would have to wrestle with. This is something that they would have to think through, pray through, search the scriptures to find the answer for. And so over the next couple times that I preach, it's really going to be my aim to walk through the passage at a snail's pace and mine out different truths that emerge from the text for us when it comes to how these new believers, how these churches really sought to find the answer to the question, how is a person saved? So I'm going to pull out different truths as we go along. And this morning, we're going to start with the local church. So my aim this morning really is just to concentrate on the importance of the local church. And then we'll see that it expands not only just from local, from a local church, but also to a network of local churches. So look at the text with me, please. Acts 14, verse 24. The Bible says, then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. The they there, let's remember, is Barnabas and Paul. 
And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Ataliah, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Chapter 5, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea who were teaching the brothers. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Look back with me now at verse 24. Let's just contextually remember where we were at in this story. We've just seen Paul and Barnabas last week return to Lystra, to Derby, or return from Derby rather to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Pisidia. We talked at length about how they went back to a very difficult situation and persevered by the grace of God and being empowered by the grace of God. They, they did that not only for their own spiritual good, but they persevered also for the good of the church as a whole. But when we come to verse 24, one of the things that we notice is they didn't just stop at Antioch, Pisidia, and they didn't just stop at Iconium, and they, they didn't just stop at Lystra, but they, they go back to places that they have been before as well. Verse 24, they go to Pamphylia. Verse 25, they go to Perga. And they also go to Ataliah. So their heart's desire was to strengthen, to establish, to firm up, and to help all these new believers and all these churches in the same way that they had helped the believers in Iconium, Lystra, and and Derby. That really was their heart and their desire. Now look back at the text. Notice what they do from there. Verse 26. Once they visited those cities, the Bible tells us that they go to Antioch. Now this was not Antioch, Pisidia. This was the Antioch that we read about in Acts chapter 13. This was their sending church. This was their quote unquote home church, as we might call it. This was the church that had listened to the Spirit through praying and fasting. And the Spirit, if you remember in Acts 13, said, 
set apart for me, Paul and Barnabas, to the work that I've called them to because I want them to take the gospel. And so they sent them out from the church. Paul and Barnabas complete their assignment and they go back to their sending church. Now that may not seem like much to begin with. It may just seem like a little bit of information that Luke is giving. It may just seem like some information that we're, we're kind of crossing over and passing through and waiting to waiting through to get to the next part. What are they going to do with this whole controversy? But before we get too far into that, before we go there, I think there's some, some things we need to consider in regards to them going back to their sending church. Here's the, the thing that I want you to think about. And them going back to Antioch, let's remember, they didn't have to do that. They didn't have to go back to Antioch. They could have just started another missionary journey. They could have launched out from Lystra. They could have launched out from Derby. They could have launched out from anywhere. They could have gone back to Jerusalem. But they did not do that. They went all the way back to the starting line, to the very people that had sent them out. Why would they do that? It's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Why would they do that? The answer is very simple, and it's this. Number one, it's because they were submitted to God. First and foremost, our primary submission is to the Lord God Almighty. To be spirit-filled, to be walking with the Spirit, to be a Christ follower, to, to bow our head and heart to King Jesus, we have to be submitted to God. And then second of all, it doesn't just stop in submitting to God, because when we submit to God, we naturally submit to one another. So the body of Christ here, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas are showing what it looks like practically to be submitted to God and then to be submitted to the authority of a local church. Don't miss that. In our day where membership doesn't matter, in our day where many churches don't have membership, in our day where so many other things and so many other lines, Drew and Christy were talk, and I were talking about this before church, so many other lines that were once distinct have become so blurred or so obliterated. Pastor Eric, they went kablooey. Sorry, man. Anyway, they've all been erased. The scriptures let us know very clearly. Humans can erase what God's laid down all they want to, but God laid it down for a reason. We're called to be a part of a local body of believers. And Paul and Barnabas model this for us. In fact, I want you to think back with me in your mind to Acts chapter 9. You remember Acts chapter 9? The Apostle Paul was on his way to arrest and persecute Christians, and he meets King Jesus on the road to Damascus. And we know the story of his conversion. I don't want to go back to that again, but I want you to think with me about what he did immediately after his conversion. Who did he link up with? Who did he lock arms with? What did he do? He linked up and locked arms with the local church. That's what he did. And that was the pattern of his ministry. The pattern of his ministry was to make disciples and form churches. So here's what I'm trying to tell you. By them starting at Antioch and finishing the job, so to speak, and going back to Antioch, they are showing that they're submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ and Christ's bride, 
the local church and that the local church has authority and that submission is a good thing to in the body of Christ. That it's not a bad thing. They weren't rogues. They weren't doing their own thing. They weren't going their own way. In fact, if you read the book of Acts, one of the things that you notice is the kingdom advances through the local church. It's so easy when we read the book of Acts to get focused on mission teams or to get focused on an individual or to get focused on an aspect of something and totally miss that everything that's going on in the book of Acts is all about the local church. That the kingdom of God is advancing through and in the local body of Christ. It's really important. Ministry flowed from and ministry flowed through the local church. In fact, I want you to go back with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Pastor Eric read this a little while ago for our call to worship. And I'm not going to be speaking on marriage. But I want to show you a few things that are very helpful when it comes to the local church. Ephesians chapter 5. Let's walk through a couple of, of truths. I want you to look at verse 23. Notice the back half of verse 23. Who's the head of the church? Christ is. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. Eric is not the head of the church. Jim is not the head of the church. Neither am I. And I know the three of us take that very seriously. This is Christ's church. And as Christ's church, all of us should take that seriously. So the text lets us know this isn't our church. This is Christ's church. He's the head. He's the leader. Text tells us in verse 23, what's our role? Well, he's the head. What are we? We're the body. 1 Corinthians 12, we could go there and and read about how we're, we're one body made up of many different members. And we don't have a right to say that one person is more important than another person. Or that one role is more important than another role. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, how can one body part say to another, we don't need you? And then you keep going in 1 Corinthians 12, I believe it's verse 19 that says, it's the Lord, the head, Christ, the head of his church that arranges the body as he sees fit. This is not our church. Christ is the head of the church. We are his body. And we're placed here by his sovereign wisdom. It's been decreed before the foundations of the world what gifting we would have, the calling that we would have, the placement that we would have, the role that we would have in the body of Christ. So hear me say this. If you're here today and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you're a member of our church. God has given you gifts to use for the good of the body of Christ here. And I say this with much grace and much tenderness and much love. But it's not okay to not use your spiritual gifts. It's not okay. God gave you those to use. 
God gave you those to help the body. Not only did we, we learn last week, not only does suffering strengthen the body as a whole, but when I use my spiritual gifts, I'm strengthened as a whole. Pastor Tom, I thought about you. Did you notice how many times he fiddled with the sound? It goes unnoticed, does it not? We just don't even really think about it. Something goes wrong with the sound and we're all sitting there thinking, okay, Pastor Tom will get it or Brandon will get it. And they do. But they're using the gifts that God has given them to help us. Amen. When we come week after week after week and there's a bulletin there. I think you're there, Miss Amy. God's giving me a spotlight. I can't see very well over there. We don't really think about how that gets there. But somebody's given leadership to that and printing that and making that. And I know Miss Kathy's helpful with all of that. And then the music. Singing a psalm today was awesome, wasn't it not? We're called to sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. We've done a really good job over the years singing spiritual songs and hymns. Today was a mile marker for our church. This is the first day we sang a song. Man, praise God for that. Y'all see what I'm saying? It's pretty awesome. Nobody could have designed that, only God. So Paul and Barnabas are showing this, that really what they're doing is just submitting to the Lordship of Christ and they're being his body. Look at verse 23. It's Christ that's the Savior. We could talk a lot, could we not, about looking to false messiahs even within the own local church. Well, if I could just talk to Pastor Eric, everything will be okay. And there, there may be truth in that. I need to talk to Pastor Eric. But he's not the Messiah. He's not my Savior. I love him dearly as a brother. Verse 24, what does the church do? Notice, what does the church do? Boy, that, that's hard to get out, isn't it? We are in such an anti-authoritarian culture. We don't like it. We don't like being told what to do. You don't, you don't believe me? Just be a school teacher, right, Miss Kim, for a little bit? Right, Robert? People can be disrespectful and not obey. I mean, be respectful and not obey. They don't have to necessarily be disrespectful and mean. Just not follow the rule. God's given us his word and given us his principles for us to submit to and follow and apply. That's our calling. Keep going. Look at the text. Verse 25. What does Christ, what does the Bible say about Christ and the church? Well, he loves us. He's the one that gave himself up for us. In verse 26 and verse 27, I think they can certainly be applied to the husband and wife relationship. But the first thing we need to figure out is who is the he in that text? The he in that text is Christ. It's first talking about Jesus. What is he gonna do? He's gonna set us apart. He's gonna cleanse us up, clean us up. And then verse 27, at some point in time, notice what he's gonna do. This, is, this blows my mind, Pastor Jim. He's setting us apart, cleaning us up with his word so that he can present us back to himself. Holy, without blemish. Man, that's awesome. Think about that. Think about what you're really like. <laughs> Think about what I'm really like. But yet Christ perseveres in us 
with his spirit and word, continually cleaning us up, continually working in our lives. Drop down to verse 29. The Bible says, excuse me, verse 30. The Bible says there that we are members of his body. So again, when when we read this about Paul and we read this about Barnabas, starting at the church of Antioch and finishing at the church of Antioch, what they are doing is recognizing that Jesus is the head Jesus is the one that's ultimately called them. Jesus is the ultimate, ultimately the one that has sent them. Now hear me carefully. You can go back to Acts 15. And while you're doing that, don't zone out. Or Acts 14, rather. Don't zone out. They're also, by submitting themselves to the local church, making themselves accountable to the local church. That's another thing that they're doing. It's very important. They're making themselves accountable to the local church. One of the things that Pastor Eric and Pastor Jim and myself did when we first got here was to strive to make membership more meaningful. It was an interesting thing, Christy, you may remember this, but early on there were times where people would drop off their children in our our nursery and then go somewhere else. And I kept thinking... I don't get that. That doesn't make sense to me. Or I'd have somebody, we'd have people that would be in our church sometime and then be in another church sometime. I'm not hating on other churches. That's not my point. My point is, if God's placed you in a body, bloom where you're planted and plant your life there and use the spiritual gifts that God has given you and submit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, submit yourself to the local church and help that church be healthy. God's placed you there for that reason. And so... In biblical reformation, we went to work to make membership more meaningful here. And, and I hope that we've done that. It's one reason why we covenant together the way that we do in membership. Because we've promised to God and we've promised to one another. We've promised to ourselves to make membership meaningful. That this promise that I'm making is not just lip service, but with my life, no matter how hard that it is. Or how much I want to give up. Or how aggravated that I may be. Or how much I have to ask for forgiveness from somebody else. I'm going to apply the gospel because the local church matters. And it's, it's, it's not right to say that you're submitted to Christ and, and, and not be submitted to a local church. I mean, think about this. How can you be underneath the discipline of a church, the protection of a church, and the watch care of a church if you're not a member of a church? Matthew 18 can't apply to you. Think about it. So Paul and Barnabas are ultimately not only saying, hey, we finished the job, but they're saying, hey, we're submitted to you. You're our leaders. We're not rogues. We're not doing our own thing. It's not about us. We're not celebrity pastors. Pastor Jim, the other dynamic that you've taught us in this is the fact that when we send When we support, it's as if we're on the mission field with them. Do you make that connection in your mind? I want you to make that connection in your mind and in your heart. That these missionaries that we support and these other missionary agencies that we help with, they're not just things to do. They're not just things to do because we don't have anything else to do. Or we want to feel good about what we're doing. 
We strategically partner with people so that the gospel can go forward and then it's as if we're on the field with them. That's why we do a mission moment every week to keep it before us. That's why we talk about missions. Hopefully all this COVID stuff will clear and at some point we can go back. So when Callie goes to wherever she ends up going this summer, it's not just Callie that's going. It's us going with her. We're sending her. Does that make sense? And so many times we forget that. And let me show you what I'm talking about from the text. Look at verse 27. So when Paul and Barnabas get there, what, what's the first thing that they do? They, they, they get back to Antioch and who do they gather? They gather the church. And then they give a report. Verse 27. They declare all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Man, that's awesome. They accomplished the task through much pain, heartache, or adversity. Many people have come to faith in Christ and now they're celebrating it. And they're basically saying, We've done what you asked. You sent us and we did this. Here's what's happened. They're reporting back. They're making themselves accountable. Listen, Billy, in your job, you have a lot of responsibility. You have a lot of people that work for you and they report to different managers. But at the end of the day, who do they ultimately report to? They report to you. And who do you ultimately report to? To your boss. I'm not saying the church is a boss. I don't mean like that. We're not a corporation. I don't mean it in that way. But what I mean is we already understand accountability built into the rhythm of life. And so Paul and Barnabas are just simply saying, listen, we didn't steal any money. We didn't do anything immoral. We preached the gospel. We suffered for Christ and people came to know Jesus. It's pretty awesome. But that's not all. Look back at the text with me. Look at verse 15. Excuse me, look at verse 1 of chapter 15. Verse 28 of 14 tells us that there was some time of peace. We don't know how long that they stayed there with them, but, but they're, they're enjoying fellowship with one another for a length of time that's undisclosed to us. And then verse 1, there's a, there's a hinge where things are, are going to turn on this conjunction at the beginning of verse 1. Luke is, is transitioning the narrative to something else now. And he tells us that there were some people that came from Judea and began to teach. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses. Now, think about this last part. You cannot be saved. You cannot be saved. Drew, I remember years ago when I first came here. There were people that were teaching other things about the gospel that weren't right. And I've always said this, and I'll say it yet again, that I'll be indebted to you, and I appreciate you for standing with me, for saying that's not right. And we had no small dissension, did we? It was a debate, wasn't it? And we had to solve it as a local church, didn't we? And that's exactly what's happening here in verse 1. So there's this thing that pops up. I would say it's a heresy. That's come in from among the body of believers. 
that salvation is by faith plus works. And look at verse 2. Paul and Barnabas begin to address this with these people, and it begins to cause a stir. And there's a debate within the church. Now, I want you to notice this. It says, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others, look at the way that it's worded. Were what? Were what? Appointed. Huh. That's easy to read over, isn't it, Pastor Jim? They were appointed to take the gospel in Acts 13, and they were appointed by the church at Antioch to find a solution to this problem. This is not Paul and Barnabas doing their own thing apart from the local body of Christ. They're still working together. They're still submitted to God. They're still submitted to the local church. And it's the local church that takes Paul and Barnabas and appoints them, look at the text, to go to Jerusalem to a sister church, to the apostles, to the elders about this question. So now we've got a network, Pastor Tom. Now we've got a network. Now we've got churches serving churches, working together for the glory of God and for the good of the gospel and for the advancement of the kingdom to try to solve problems. It's interesting. So this local church sends Paul and Barnabas. Then we have another local church that was started that's mutually submitted to the church at Jerusalem to get help. And then notice what happens. Verse 3. So they are, look at the wording again. This is not doing their own thing. They're being what? So being what? Sent. Sent. Sent by the church. The text tells us there. They pass through two regions. One Phoenicia and one Samaria. And Mr. Bill, one thing about Paul and Barnabas, they never missed an opportunity, did they? Because look at what happens. They cared about their brothers and sisters in Phoenicia and they cared about their brothers and sisters in Samaria. What do they do? They describe in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and what happens. Great joy comes to those two regions. All those believers celebrate the fact that the gospel is going forward and people come to faith in Christ. Now let's hang here for just a second. Paul and Barnabas could have been so mad and so irritated and so angry and so bent out of shape and so bitter and so filled up with hatred at the fact that these people were teaching the wrong thing or had challenged their authority or whatever, they could have made it about themselves that they would have missed the opportunity in Phoenicia and Samaria. But they didn't because it wasn't about them. This was a church issue. This was a church. They were part of it, but this was a church situation and their perspective was right. Remember what we talked about? They were trusting a sovereign God. That all of this was an opportunity for the gospel to go forward, for God to be glorified, and somehow, some way, the kingdom meant to advance. They knew at the end of the day, even though it would be difficult, the, the church would be strengthened, which is what happens. We'll learn about that later. And all these believers are celebrating the fact that the gospel's going forward. And look at verse 4. They come to Jerusalem, they're welcomed by who? The church. Man, are you are you catching are you catching the language of the passage? I mean, this 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 passage is over and over and over again talking about the brothers, believers. It's talking about the church, 
believers. It's talking about the body of Christ. We're family. So the apostles and the elders, they declare all that God had done. Verse 5. But some believers who belong to the party, the Pharisees, they rise up again. And then they say the same thing again. It's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now look at verse 6. The apostles and the elders, the leadership gathers together to consider this matter. So let me try to put all the pieces of the puzzle together for us. Paul and Barnabas are submitted to God and submitted to the local church. An issue arises. They can't settle it in the local church. The local church is submitted to Christ and mutually submitted to other local churches. This may be a good place to insert comment that there was a day in church life where our churches, not just recent, but I mean hundreds of years ago, where our churches actually held each other accountable for doctrine, for doctrinal heresy. Even in our own association, the Big Lake Association, a church can still be dismembered from our association for heresy. In fact, several years ago, there was a church in Belglade that was uh, dismembered from our association for teaching false doctrine. But that used to be commonplace. So they're submitted to God. They're submitted to one another as churches. And then as we watch this text continually unfold now, the Jerusalem church is now submitting. Well, they've been submitting to God. They submitted to God and now they're trying to, to find the answer. And they're doing this together. And we'll see the way of the, 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 way the rest of this unfolds. The next couple times that I preach. But I want you to think about this with me. We're getting ready to study the Second London Confession. And I wanted to just very briefly talk to you about a couple of things that our Baptist forefathers put in place that were very wise. While I'm trying to find it, do you know the longest section in the Second London Confession? The topic, the doctrine, it's not God's sovereignty, it's not God's decrees, it's the church. It's the church. It's interesting. Our Baptist forefathers knew something important about the church. Here's what they say in Article 26, Section 4. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church by the Father's appointment. All authority is conferred on him in a supreme and sovereign manner to call, institute, order, and govern the church. We just saw that in the text, did we not? It's exactly what we saw in the text in, in the book of Acts and Ephesians 5. Article 26, section 5, they say, those who are called, he commands to live together in local societies or churches for their mutual edification and the fitting conduct of public worship that he requires of them while they are in the world. It's everything that we just talked about and saw from the text, is it not? It's what we just saw in the text that Paul and Barnabas were submitted to the local church. Section 26, 
Article 26, Section 12 says all believers are obligated to join themselves to a local church when and where they have opportunity. Likewise, all who are admitted to the privileges of a church are also subject to the discipline and government of it according to the rule of Christ. That's what we just saw in the book of Acts in chapter 14 in the beginning part of chapter 15. And finally, Article 26, Section 14 says... Every church and all its members are obligated to pray continually for the good and prosperity of all churches of Christ in every place. Hmm. Hmm. Let me read that again. Every church and all its members are obligated to pray continually for the good and prosperity of all churches of Christ in every place. what we just read about in the book of Acts in chapter 14 in the beginning part of chapter 15 churches mutually submitting to one another they go on to say they must also at every opportunity within the limits of their stations and callings exercise their gifts and graces to benefit every church also when churches are raised up by the providence of God insofar as they enjoy opportunity and favorable circumstances for it they should have fellowship among themselves for their peace and growth in love and mutual edification. No man is an island. No church is an island. We're called to partner together and work together for the glory of God and for the advancement of the kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this passage of scripture. There's so much more that could be said that wasn't said that just didn't have time to get to. But we'll trust, Lord, that what what was shared, you'll use and sanctify to our hearts. God, there may be someone that's here this morning that's been, or listening, that's not in the faith. And they're like, man, you know, I, I, I know that I need to be in Christ. Lord, I pray that they will turn from their sin and trust you, even now. And Father, I pray for the rest of us that are in the faith, that you'll continue to help us grow when it comes to our understanding of the importance of the local church. So Lord, we love you. And Lord, we praise you. We thank you. We thank you for the example that you set down in scripture for us to follow. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand to your feet as we close by worshiping the Lord through song.